Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Another holy day. Welcome to our guests. Welcome to everyone here on this Sabbath of Sabbaths. Appreciated the offertory message. We'll be expanding upon that here, actually, in the next uh, hour or so. Charles Baudelaire was a 19th century French poet and essayist, famous for doing some translation of Edgar Allan Poe, actually, into the French language for those in France. But he was a poet, an essayist, a lot of uh, commentary on a number of items, And his 1864 essay entitled, The Generous Gambler, he said the following. He said, the loveliest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. The loveliest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. This has since been oft quoted by many, most notably in the movie The Usual Suspects. But this might be the only point of philosophy that I would agree with Charles Baudelaire on because much of the rest of his belief system, his actions, all that he stood for was quite anti-biblical, quite worldly, as we would say. But on this specific point, I think he was spot on. One of the greatest tricks of the devil is to try and convince us that he doesn't exist. And if he succeeds, imagine the ramifications of that. Let me actually show you some examples of how he may be trying to do this. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We'll read verse 8. This is, for context here, this is the temptation of Christ by Satan the devil at the end of 40 days of fasting. We just have one. He had 40. And in verse 8, if you have the King James Version or the New King James, it reads this. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve, or shall you serve. Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship only the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Does anybody have a version other than the New King James or the King James with them? Okay. The NIV. We'll just pick one. I'm picking this one. The NIV reads this. So follow along in your King James or New King James. And now listen to the NIV. And the NIV is just representative of a a myriad of modern texts. Jesus answered and is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Anybody Anybody catch what's missing? Complete reference to Satan the devil. Let's go now to Luke 11. Luke 11. I will read from a modern translation while you follow along in your King James or New King James. And we'll read verse 4. We'll read verse 4. This is the Lord's Prayer. Given this was not during the Sermon on the Mount that's covered in Matthew chapter 5. This is later on. I think when you follow along in Pastor Adrian's study on the book of Luke, he referred to this as the Sermon on the Plain. But we'll read verse 4, and I will read it from a modern translation. Forgive, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Anybody catch what's missing? Deliver us from evil is not in, is not in the modern translation. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 14, where Daniel read to us from. 
we'll read just the beginning of verse 12. I will read from a modern translation, specifically the, the NIV, but again, as I mentioned before, it's just a, a representative of a sample of modern translations. Verse 12 begins, How have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn? No mention of Lucifer. And in fact, causes confusion, because if you go to Revelation, Jesus Christ is referred to as the morning star. But here, as you're reading in the King James and the New King James, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now, in some of my research, the part and parcel that lies behind some of this, and specifically in the, the particular version I referenced, that one of the translators actually has a belief that Satan doesn't exist. And we find that in translations. Now, that's not to say specifically that the King James or the New King James doesn't have translation errors. We could, and this is not clearly the place for this. This is the a Day of Atonement message. But what we do see here, building upon that quote from Charles Baudelaire, is the loveliest trick of the devil is to try and convince people he doesn't exist. And some modern translations in many of these famous passages remove reference to evil, remove reference to Satan, remove reference to the devil. Deacon Jan spoke to us this past Sabbath on this festival, this Day of Atonement that we're keeping today. And in part, he said something very insightful comparing Passover with the Day of Atonement. He said that Passover is about personal forgiveness of sin. Well, atonement is about the complete removal of evil. This day, despite all the debates that surround some of the the interpretations of Scripture, is a fabulous day. And the reason why this is such a great, great day is that Satan does exist. And evil will be removed from this world because of the the events that today pictures. We do understand that it will temporarily be brought back, but ultimately it will be completely eradicated from this world. So today, and the time we have remaining as we celebrate this day together and worship God together, let's take a look at the removal of Satan the removal of Satan the devil, our adversary, and see why this day is such an integral part of the plan of God. Because it is true, one of the loveliest tricks, the cleverest things he has done, is try to convince us that he absolutely doesn't exist. If he doesn't exist, we might as well close up, say a prayer and go home. But this day, pictures his removal, the the eradication of evil, because he does exist. We're in Isaiah 14. Let's stay there as we start. Let's, for some context, let's go back to verse 1. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, Isaiah 14, verse 1, and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. As Isaiah looks into the future of what the future holds for God's people, he is reminded and reminds us of the covenant. Brother Jan talked about this covenant moments ago when he read from Genesis chapter 12. And it was important given what Isaiah could see and what God revealed to him was on the horizon. But that powerful phrase we just read over in verse 1, the Lord will still choose Israel. This is at the backdrop of what we see going to continue to be written here through the pen of Isaiah, through his visions. 
God will still choose his covenant people. It shall come to pass, verse 3, in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. A beautiful, magnificent vision of what is in store because God remains faithful to his covenant. Some believe this passage is only about the king of Babylon. That this is only about the king of Babylon. And there's a similar prophecy in Ezekiel 28 where some believe it is only about the king of Tyre. But let's notice something. Verse 4, that you take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. This word proverb is the Hebrew word mashal. Mashal. It's 49.12 in your Strong's Concordance. And it means a metaphor, maxim, or a parable. So what God to Isaiah is saying here is that you will take up this parable against the king of Babylon and say, this is, so this is not a prophecy. This is a parable. Let's go to, hold your place here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. And in verse 10, we know that Jesus Christ to the masses and to his followers and disciples spoke many, many times in parables. We're going through the Gospel of John in our studies here, and we see some of that pervade there. We see this throughout Matthew and Luke and Mark, these many, many parables that Christ taught concepts through stories. Verse 10, the disciples came to him. Matthew 13, verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to us in parables? This is a teaching, a teaching way. And many of us have had various types of teachers in our, in our past. Some we learned from well, some that we didn't connect with because of their teaching style. Here, they asked him bluntly, why do you teach us in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Hmm. For whoever has, to him it will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which he says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you will see, and shall not understand. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Back to Isaiah 14. The purpose of parables is for those who understand, those who see into the lesson, you have been given the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. If you're understanding what is being said through parables, you're getting it. The Holy Spirit is working with you. Jerome, a 4th century theologian, called Isaiah a gospel. He said, Isaiah is not a prophecy. Isaiah is a gospel. Interesting that Pastor Adrian will be starting off 
a, the next series of Wednesday Bible studies, and he will be calling it the Gospel of Isaiah. We know the second half of Isaiah, second Isaiah, that begins in chapter 40, is all about the suffering servant and a, a parable of sorts pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense that it is a gospel. Isaiah is all about the good news of the kingdom of God and deals with the suffering servant. But these parabolic teachings in Isaiah that we understand to be of Christ when he talks about the suffering servant in the last third of the, of the, the book also extend to Isaiah 14 for those who have their eyes opened to the parable, for those who can see. If Isaiah understood the need for a savior, the need was because there was an adversary. The gospel presented to us here through the prophet Isaiah. So when we look here at Isaiah chapter 14, is this the king of Babylon or is it Lucifer? If this is a parable, and parables are meant to unlock the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. We have studied throughout the last number of months and years. So we have studied here Satan's impact on God's people. From the fall of Adam and all that that means. Through the global impact of Nimrod. From the time after the flood in Genesis 11. And all the empires and systems and political schools of thought and ideologies that stem from Nimrod and, point, and trace their roots back to him, all pointing back to the adversary that was introduced to us back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. So was this about the king of Babylon? Probably. There are truth in parables. But for those who have had the scales peeled off their eyes, who have the Holy Spirit in them and working. This provides proof and unlocks another mystery to the kingdom of heaven, that there is evil and there is an evil one. And this day pictures the ratification of evil. Before we go deeper into Isaiah 14, let's go to Genesis 3. Brother Jan, Deacon Jan, referred to Pastor Adrian's offertory message back on the Feast of Trumpets. I'd like to go back there, look at one of his points that he covered. Genesis chapter 3. Sorry, Genesis chapter 4. And after Cain had, for time's sake, we were not going to go through the entire story. After Cain and Abel made their offering and God accepted one, which is why we pray a prayer of acceptance over our offerings. And he did not accept Cain's. And Pastor Adrian went through the reasons why. And Cain ended up having anger within him that he could, didn't control to the point that he killed his brother. God here pronounces a punishment on Cain. And let's look at Cain's reaction to this punishment in verse 13. And I want you to count the number of personal pro, singular personal pronouns that are referred to here. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Pastor Adrian talked about all that that means. This narcissistic way that Cain had. That amongst all the evil that he caused, the pain that he caused his mother, his father, himself, by simply taking a life, that his focus was on himself and all the, and the punishment that he had to endure. What, a, what a, an example of narcissism. And these, we won't take time to turn there, but he also covered Jude, verse 11. And we see the narcissistic examples of Cain and Balaam and Korah and how he, they all speak to us. Centuries and millennia later, their examples speak to us about what not to be. 
But where did these attitudes come from? Where did these attitudes come from? Let's go back to Isaiah 14, this parable that we have looked at earlier. Isaiah 14. And we'll read again where Daniel read earlier. Begin in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you, Lucifer, have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Five I will statements that God attributes to Lucifer. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. How do we see these statements played out for us? Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We go back to the story of the temptation of Christ. And for time's sake, we certainly don't have time to cover the entire story, all three temptations. But let's zero in on the last one, the culmination of 40 days of fasting, followed by a tete-a-tete between Christ and Satan. Satan trying to tempt him to sin and to prey upon his weakness in his most weakened state. And after Christ fended off the first two temptations with Scripture. Verse 8 is where we pick it up in Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This was the last stand. This was not just bread. This was not just save me. This was worship me. Fall down before me and worship me, Satan said, and I will give you all that that you see. All that you see. Imagine what's in Satan's mind based on what we've already read in these five I will statements. If I can get the Son of God to worship me, I will be like the Most High. Because the Son of God only worships the Most High. So if I can get him to worship me, I will be like the Most High. Just like he said, and Isaiah prophesied, I will be like the Most High. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 We'll pick it up in verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. We celebrated this and looked forward to this on the Feast of Trumpets. We ask you, so we're in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 1. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And we were, we're familiar with all of the false teachings that were going on here. And Paul is saying, listen, it hasn't come yet. So if anybody says so, tells you so, forwards you an email, sends you a letter, anything that I've said this, I didn't say it. 
Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Satan will influence evil men in the last days to assume mantles that they have no part taking, to teach things they have no right to teach, to say things that simply are untrue. And all this serves to help exalt Satan above the stars of God. If we buy into any of these these false teachings, we end up serving him. We end up ceding to his teachings. Just like he said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And we see the impact that this ideology is having on Christians today. Christians are needing in many, many places, and those many, many places are coming closer and closer to go underground. It's not safe anymore. We're not sure anymore how safe it is to profess your faith in Christ. Let's go to John 14. Despite all that we see and hear going on around us, all these new ideologies, all these new religions, and that there are many, many ways to the afterlife, that God can be found in many places. Verse 5 of John 14, after the, their keeping of the New Testament Passover, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? He was speaking again, parabolically. Now they were asking. They wanted to understand. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. There is no other way to eternal life except through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's none. There's one way, there's one truth, and there's one life. And that is through Jesus Christ himself. Yet, that's not what we hear played out. We hear God is everywhere. God is in every religion. That's not what God said. That's not what the Son of God came to tell us. And Peter then preaches this very fact not long after his death in Acts 4. In Acts 4. Famous scripture. Verse 12 of Acts 4, we're at the end of addressing Sanhedrin. Peter says, now there is sal- now, now is, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yet Satan has set himself up upon the mount of the congregation, professing truths that there are other ways to be saved. There are other methods by which we can have eternal life. Not true. Not true. He can claim to sit upon the mount of the congregation all that he wants, leading people to false hope in forms of other religions and away from Christ. But he can't and won't ever sit atop the mountain of the house of God. Not ever. Not ever. Ephesians 2. So we're seeing through scripture how Satan's narcissism and all that he told God, either through word or action, that he would do, that God made known to us through Isaiah, we're seeing it played out. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. He assumes control of the airwaves, seeking to influence our minds. And all the pressures that we face on a daily basis, from school, from work, from friends, from family, from health, from financial, all these stressors that we are influenced by. Imagine we've come to the point where from here, before the Day of Atonement, Deacon Jan had to say, let's put our phones away for 24 hours. And we actually had to think that through. We actually had to turn them off and process that. That is how much we are influenced in these airwaves. That is how much Satan has got control of us. That we actually have to process the thought that, okay, for today, I'm actually going to turn this off and I'm not going to look at it. Satan uses the tool of distraction against us. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. We can see how he's been doing this and how it has affected us. This is why we are admonished by the Holy Spirit. We are admonished by God through the use of the Holy Spirit that we've been given to fight back and fight hard against these tactics that he has leveled against us in this spiritual warfare. Let's go to James chapter 4 and see some of these admonitions from God that he has given to us, the first fruits, to fight back, to stand strong. Because there is a devil, there is an adversary, and he is at work. James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. These are active words that we read here. There are things we must do to resist the influences of the adversary. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We talked about purity. We talked about holiness on the Feast of Trumpets. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. There is nothing more humbling than afflicting our souls and not eating and not drinking. We only have to do it for a day. Christ did it for 40 And he stood strong against the wiles of the adversary to show us that it can be done. But we see here, and as we've talked about before, there's either submitting to God or there's submitting to the adversary. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. Therefore, submit to God and thereby resist the devil. And do so through these cleansing acts, these positive acts. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 10 and continue to look at this spiritual warfare that we are up against. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, Paul, am pleading with you, who in presence am am lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And we've all got strongholds. We've all got things, items that we seek refuge in that aren't God. Pulling down our strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. All those things that we trust and rely on that aren't God. 
These are those strongholds. These are those those high things in these arguments that we rely on, that we put our faith in, when our faith should be in God himself and Jesus Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is that spiritual warfare we're up against with all of these things that Satan has at his disposal to distract us, to influence us, to to get us off our guard. First Timothy six. First Timothy six. Verse 11, as he's winding down this first letter to Timothy. But you, O man of God, Paul, encouraging Timothy, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Not just, you know, let's not look at it because today's the day of atonement or today's the Sabbath. Flee. Run like the wind. Leave them so far behind. Flee them and pursue these godly things. Fight the good fight, verse 12, of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. For those who say faith is, is, requires no action, Paul himself says otherwise. Faith is a good fight, and faith takes fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We're all witnesses of each other's faith. We all help each other through these times. But this is a fight. As long as, until this day is fulfilled, we are at war with an adversary. But praise be to God that we have his Holy Spirit within us to help with that fight. Praise be that we have the example of Jesus Christ, who after 40 days of fasting, still had it within him to stand strong on Scripture and fight off the, the temptations of Satan. Ephesians 6. We're very familiar with the armor of God. So we won't take time to read the armor of God specifically. Let's look Let's read how Paul leads up into the armor of God here in Ephesians 6. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This walk is not a cakewalk. This walk is not pleasant along a river and nothing nothing will dissuade us be strong in the lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil the wiles of the devil this is a this is an individual who's at a mindset far above us without the holy spirit but with the holy spirit we can stand against him we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, not part of it, not what is comfortable, not what looks good. Take, up, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, having done all you can do to stand. And then he goes into detail about what this armor of God entails. Let's go back to Isaiah and present a contrast to Satan's I will mentality. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. And as we do, what we're going to do is look at how God called Isaiah into ministry. How Isaiah determined 
that God was calling him as a prophet and as a servant. We'll pick it up in verse 1 here of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled with the temple. What a vision. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What a vision Isaiah had of God's magnificence. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah here feels, he feels unworthy to be in this presence. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king and the Lord of hosts. He feels because of who he is, and he sees himself as a sinner. And he sees himself as a sinner in a group of sinners. And he sees this magnificence. I'll, I'll never get there. I'm undone. I, I, I'm cut off. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Then one of the seraphim in verse 6 flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, and obviously this altar is referring back to the, the holy tabernacle, the holy temple, and all that, that Moses was witness to when he built the, the tabernacle and Solomon in the future built the temple. Verse 7, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. God here presents justification to Isaiah, that he has been made. He has had his sins covered. He has had his sins taken away. Then he heard, upon realizing this and being cleansed, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. What was he saying here? Who will go for us? I will. I'll go. I will go. And he said, go and tell the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but not, do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Again, the whole purpose, this is a parable because the parables were meant to only be understood by those whose eyes were being opened, but they were to remain mysteries to those who weren't. And that's exactly what we're seeing rhymed off here. The summary, the purpose and the summary of his, of his, of his prophecy here by God. Go tell the people this. Then I said, how long, Lord? How long will I need to do this? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tent will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Here is what we need. Who will go and get this done? And Isaiah says, I will. I will. Then he asks God, how long? And as God's answer, as long as it takes to get the job done. And Isaiah's response was silence. Silence, but deafening. Today we practice putting God's will ahead of our own through fasting through completely shutting out everything else in our lives, focusing on him and here while we're with the body, focusing on worshiping him together. Looking forward to the day when evil will no longer be an influence in this world. Let's go to Isaiah 58.
we often refer to this as part of the understanding the suffering servant and the fasting that the, the type of fasting that God requires of us. But before we do, let's go back to verse three and see God taking his people to task here. Let's go back to verse 1. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? We have done all these things. We've got this checklist and we've checked them all off. And I'm, I'm presenting it to you. And I, we fasted faithfully. Why have you not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? I did this and I got nothing out of this. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure, God answers, and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is this a fast that I have chosen? Is this a day for man to afflict his soul this way? Deacon Jan talked about holiness, the need to be holy. This is the narcissistic way to fast. To do so, to show God all that I'm doing. God, you need me. Look at all that I'm doing. You, you need a guy like me. You need a faithful servant like me. Look at everything I'm doing for you. Verse 10, we, we don't have time to go through all of this. I'm sure you've, if you haven't, you have time later to go through this. These are the kind of servants God is looking for. Verse 10. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually, and he will satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the fountains of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. These are the kind of servants God is looking for. Here I am, Lord. Pick me. Let me be a repairer of the breach. Let me do this. With your help, I can do this. In the quiet of your meditation today, as you give this 24 hours completely to God, ask yourself this question. Is there anything I wouldn't do for God if he asked me to? Is there anything I wouldn't do? Not me, Lord. Pick someone else. Or you've been in class where you didn't, might not have known the answer, didn't want to raise, or even maybe in our Bible studies, when questions are answered, or you remember back to class, and if someone's question is answered, you're, you're just avoiding eye contact, because as long as I don't have eye contact, the teacher can't call on me. Don't ask me, Lord. Please don't ask me. Is there anything you wouldn't do for God if he asked you to do that? Let's go to Ezekiel 22 and look more at this contrasting version of I will. Ezekiel 22. And this world we're about to read here, beginning of verse 23, is eerily similar to the one we live in. Ezekiel describes a world that you would think he was alive and writing what he sees on the news that we, that we have today. Verse 23 of Ezekiel 22. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the clean and the unclean. Not only are they not teaching it, they're not living it, they're not uh, 
discerning it. There, nobody has any clue at this time what is holy or unholy, what is clean or unclean. No one has any clue because no one's teaching it, no one's living it, no one's abiding by it, no one's holding anybody accountable. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has spoken. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. This is what is going on in your land, God. All of these things. A hatred for God. A hatred for his way of life. A hatred for those who serve him. A hatred for holiness and a hatred for truth. So I sought, God says, for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. No one. Therefore, because I am a God of covenant, because I keep my promises, I am forced to having to pour out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. But all it would take was for one person to stand up and stand in the gap. If Christ were to come here, looking for someone to put their life on the line, would he hear silence like he heard in Ezekiel's time? Would he hear silence? Or would he hear, here we are, Lord? We will. We will do this. On trumpets, we read Luke 18. We, won't have to, we don't have time and we won't go there. But we read about, will the Son of Man find faith? So we're not going to turn there again. But the question bears repeating. Will he find faith? Here we are, Lord. Here we are. Let's go to Luke 22. Luke 22. There's Satan's I will. And then there's the I will that God expects from his people. Verse 39 of Luke 22. Passover related, but appropriate here. Coming out, verse 39, Luke 22, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Not my will, Christ said. Jesus, who had divested himself, who had emptied himself of of his divinity, said, not my will, but yours, Father. Yours, Father, is the will that I want to have. Let's go to John 17. We're winding down here. John 17. As we consider the, erratic, the eradication of evil, the putting away of Satan, the elimination of evil from this world that provides us with an opportunity to be at one with God. John 17, again at the end of the New, Testament, New Covenant Passover, the New Testament Passover service, Verse 20 is where we'll pick it up in Christ's prayer to the Father. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and that the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and, the, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Being at one with God is the prayer of our Savior. Our Savior prayed to his Father 
that his prayer was that we would all be one with each other and with him and with the Father. This is what this day offers us with the elimination of the adversary and the removal of evil from this world. His prayer was for our atonement. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Not only was his prayer for us to be at one with God, but his desire was for us to be with him where he is, at one and in complete unity with the Father. This was his prayer. This was his desire before he died, and he let us hear that. Let's go back to Isaiah 14, and we'll close with a couple of scriptures from Isaiah. As we look forward to the fulfillment of this day, and all that it pictures, the complete removal of evil from this world, notice what lies in store. Notice what lies in store. Verse 15 of Isaiah 14. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit, completing this parable about Lucifer that we began the sermon with. Those who see you, and this will, these will be the first fruits who will have this opportunity. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, and who did not open the house of his prisoners. Is this what has caused us all this grief? God speed that day. God speed that day. Let's finish in Isaiah 54. This fast that we are participating in is just temporary. We do it every year. Some years are good. Some years are bad. Some years are tougher. Some years are easier. But these are lessons we can't, that can't go unnoticed. What it means to completely surrender to God. To give up all of your physical desires and your physical wants, and your physical needs for 24 hours. And to afflict oneself. Verse 11 of Isaiah 54. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold again our God who keeps his word. I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies and your gates of crystal and all of your walls of precious stones. All of your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who, bring forth, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. What a day this will be to look forward to, when we will not be touched by evil, when the influences of this world will have no bearing on us, when we will have fought the good fight and have finished our race. And then the next step, verse, chapter 55 and in verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is now leading into the festival we're about to embark on. Come to the waters, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in its abundance. He is the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, 
and the life. Who will God send? Who can God count on? Who will do this? We are here. We will do this, Lord. Until we are all back together again. May God bless your festival of tabernacles. And may he keep us all safe in his arms. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.